Whenever there is a decline of love, of celibacy, chastity, the sanctity of marriage, and the love of the church, there is always a decline in the love of Our Lady, because it is through her intercession that these virtues, these sanctities, and the church prosper. A professor at the University of California wrote in one of his last books, Today, whenever you hear a good word said about Our Lady, you can be sure that he is a Protestant. And if you hear Our Lady criticized, you can be sure that he is a Catholic. That is an exaggeration. But there has been a decline in the devotion to Our Lady, and in order to revive it, we shall meditate on Our Lady first as a dream, second as a mother, and third as a spouse. First as a dream. Often in the human order, we love in ideal before we love in fact. As a man lives his life, ideas, images, dreams, readings, and imaginations are like so many separate pieces of the mosaic, until finally there is formed in his mind an ideal image of one that he loves. And then that person appears, and he says, this is the one I love. It does not always happen that there is love first in ideal, but in the divine order it is true. God loves an ideal before he loves in fact. And from all eternity, God had an image of his mother. And that was the meaning of the epistle of the Proverbs which we read. Before the mountains and hills were made, before the sea was shut up with doors, and before the earth came to be, I was. The first immaculate conception was really in the mind of God. For he had dreamed and he had thought of her. Every artist pre-exists his painting and his creation. Whistler was once asked how he came to paint such a beautiful picture of his mother. And he said, you know how it is. One tries to make one's mummy just as nice as one can. Well, with God, it was no different. And when he made the first man and woman, after exceeding preparation, he prepared a garden for them. As God alone knows how to make a garden beautiful. And then came the fall by the abuse of freedom. And God willed now to make a new paradise. And from all eternity, God thought of a new Eden, 
And you even know over whose portals the many words sin would never be written. And this new paradise of the incarnation, this new paradise to be gardener that the Adam knew, would be the Blessed Mother. She was therefore the dream, and therefore I believe she is the ideal woman whom every man loves without knowing it. And she is the kind of woman that every woman subconsciously wants to be. She's the ideal of both virginity and motherhood. In all virginity there's something ungiven. In all motherhood there's something surrendered. In Mary there was nothing ungiven, there was nothing surrendered. And she therefore became the perfect ideal and prototype of virgins and mothers. So she was first a dream in the mind of God. Then she became a mother. And out from the great white throne of light there came an angel of light. The angel descended into the valley of over the plains of Esdraelon and came to this virgin kneeling in prayer and said, Highly favored one of God. And then she would ask, she was asked, Would you give God a man? Will you give him a human nature? And she said, How can this be? I know not man. Now the word know in scripture is always used to signify the union of man and woman. Hence, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Solomon knew her not. Paul, husbands possess your wives in knowledge. The New English Bible has a very good translation of it, namely, how can this be, seeing that I am a virgin? I know not man. Now there can be no conception without fire and passion, and here, the fire is supplied by the Holy Spirit. And Mary then agrees to give to God a human nature. And when she does this, there is something that really should not disturb our minds, namely the virgin birth. After all, now in this church there are certainly some converts. These converts can remember the exact moment in their lives when Christ was born in them. Many of us were baptized as infants. But if we had a second conversion and really began to give our lives to Christ, we can remember when Christ came and took possession of us. For example, Lydia, who was converted by Paul. Her ears were open to the word. That is the way it is described in the Acts of the Apostles. When, therefore, we receive grace and the gift of faith, what happens? God comes into our mind and his truth possesses our intellect so that we have God's truth in the mind. God takes possession of our will because he becomes the primary object of our love. And God takes possession of the body to a great extent, too, because the body becomes the temple of God. 
And St. Paul says, use your body as a reasonable service. And again, the body belongs to the Lord, and the Lord belongs to the body. So in every Christianization of a soul, you have what? You have God taking hold of that person. But God does not lay hold of us in each and every way, and in exactly the same way, because we do not give ourselves completely. Some have God's truth much more intimately and deeply than others. And he possesses the will of others far more strongly than those who are making compromises. And so it is with the body. But this is all done by the hearing of the word of God, by the perception of the word. Now we take the next step. If then God takes hold of our intellect and our will and our body, should it be surprising that there might be some creature in the world that would be so completely possessed by God that he would not only seize the will and the mind, but the body, and Christ would be physically conceived in her as Christ is spiritually conceived in us. In other words, there would be conception by perception. That is the virgin birth. T.K. Chesterton has some lovely lines about the motherhood of our Lord. And I will read you a few of his quatrains. The first is the reference to her as the gate of heaven. When God turned back eternity and was young, ancient of days, growing little for your mirth, as under the low arch the land is bright, peered through you, gate of heaven, and saw the earth. house of gold, or shutting out his shining skies a while, built you about him for a house of gold, to see in pictured walls his storied world return upon him as a tale is told. See the wisdom, or young on your strong knees and lift it up. Wisdom cried out, whose voice is in the street, and more than twilight of twice-born cherubim made of your throne indeed a mercy seat. And this last, the Tower of Ivory, mystical rose, arisen from play at your pale raiment's hem. God grown adventurous from all times repose. Up your tall body climbed as an ivory tower and kissed upon your lips a mystic rose. I will repeat that verse. Arisen from clay at your pale raiment's hem, God grown adventurous from all times repose, up your tall body climbed as an ivory tower 
and kissed upon your lips the mystic rose. She now becomes the mother of God. All other mothers, when they have the children in their arms, say, there is heaven up there. The Blessed Mother looked down to heaven. But it is not easy to have the vocation of being the mother of the high priest. And thus we come back to the beginning of this retreat. Mary is not a priest. She belongs to the royal priesthood, but she was a victim. And when she presents her child to the temple, there was no generation gap when Simeon, the old priest, spoke his notes and was ready to be dismissed and to go to God, because he said to her, A sword thy heart shall pierce. Now there are two Greek words for sword. One is a little dagger. The other is the word rompai one of these great, big, long, crescent swords, and that's the one that is used in the original of the Gospels. A sword will pierce thy heart, and who will hold the hilt? Her son. So she knows she's destined for victimhood and suffering. Then at the age of twelve, which is the legal age of a child, among the Jews, or rather thirteen, not twelve. She brings the child to the temple. He's lost. Many boys at twelve want to run away, and the divine child was no exception. And during those three days of loss, the Blessed Mother came to know what sin is. For sin is the loss of God. And she had lost him. And she finds him on the third day. In a land where the father was supreme, it is the mother who speaks. And she says, son, that must have been the normal everyday name she gave him, son. Son, why hast thou done so to us? Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Thy father? And he checks his mother. He's practically saying to her, Have you forgot the Annunciation? He's not my father. There's my father. And I am on his business. This is the only father I have. And Joseph disappeared. We never hear again of him in sacred scripture. At the age of 13, every Jewish child becomes a son of the commandments. He is empowered to teach. That really is the true meaning of the sacrament of confirmation. It is a kind of a puberty rite. All pagan peoples have puberty rites in which they, uh, the tribes can say, This day you are a man. And so a youth passed the line, no longer a boy, today you're growing up. Today we have no demarcation between the young and old. 
We have the longest juvenility in the world. And then we have the old imitating the young. And those that are not bald wear long hair because they want to feel young, and then the young people have to wear their long hair longer in order to get away from the old men. And so we have no, no difference between juvenility and maturity. But the problem is, why is it that the gospel speaks of our Lord at the age of twelve? Why not thirteen? I asked many Jewish rabbis throughout the country, and none of them could give the answer until I found a rabbi in Toledo, Ohio, who said, oh yes, he said, we had one exception. If the father was dead, then the child could become a son of the commandments at the age of twelve. And in your case, because you believe that Christ was born of a virgin, and therefore he had no earthly father, he became a son of the commandments at twelve. We come now to the marriage feast of Cana. Our blessed Lord is beyond the Jordan, gathering together some of his disciples. Our blessed Mother is at the marriage feast. The whole description of this marriage feast in John smacks of the Old Testament. Six, the imperfect number, watering pots for the impossible washing to be purified. And our blessed Lord now comes from beyond the Jordan to this little village of Cana, and our Lord had just gathered up his disciples. It was like a meeting of the Old and New Testament. Our blessed Lady being the daughter of Zion. And the wine gives out. Now, why should the wine give out in a wine country? Even though the marriage lasted for eight days, would they prepare enough wine? Why did the wine give out? Because our blessed Lord brought along all of his disciples. This is the first instance in Christian history of gate crashing. Naturally, the wine gave out when you get a lot of the disciples to the Lord around. So the Blessed Mother then says to our Lord, they have no wine. What a simple prayer. That's all. They have no wine. And there comes back the mysterious answer. Woman. Not mother. Woman. What is that to me? Now, in the original Greek of the Gospel, this is the statement. What to me to thee? What to me to thee? In other words, we are in this together. Woman, what to me to thee? My hour has not yet come. In other words, our Lord is reluctant to work the miracle to provide wine. He's saying, first of all, my hour has not yet come. This is not yet the moment when I declare my divinity, when I affirm that I am the Messiah, and when I put myself in the hands of men to be crucified. Now, is it your will, my dear mother, that I go to the cross? Are you going to be a mother that sends her son to the battlefield? Do you want me to work my first miracle and begin to go to my death to that awful hour? 
If that is your will, your relationship to me changes. Up until now, you were known to everyone as the mother of Jesus. But when I begin my public life, you will no longer be just the mother of Jesus. You will be the mother of everyone whom I will redeem. You will be the universal mother of mankind. You will be the mother that is spoken of in Genesis as the woman whose seed will crush the head of the serpent. And so I say to you, woman, we are in this together. Shall I begin the hour? Our blessed lady speaks seven times in scripture. And this is the last word that she utters in scripture. And what a beautiful valedictory it is. She says to the servants, whatsoever he shall say to you, that do ye. That is the effect of devotion to Our Lady. Devotion to Our Lady does not stand in the way of intimacy with our Lord. As a matter of fact, she pushes us. Whatsoever he says to you, that do ye. And in the beautiful language of Richard Crashaw, the unconscious waters saw their God and blushed. Now we come almost to the end of the mother as mother. And we open up a new title. We begin to be prepared for the Blessed Mother under a new title. As on one occasion the Blessed Mother follows her son about. He's preaching in the day and praying at night. And she sends a messenger to our Lord as he's preaching. And the messenger said, Your mother is waiting. He said, Who's my mother? Who is she? Can you imagine a priest on the day of his ordination? When someone announces his mother is there, and he says, Who's my mother? That's what our Lord said. Why did he say it? He's saying to her, she had already started him on his public life of redemption. And our blessed Lord is now saying, I do not recognize any ties of flesh and blood. We're beyond all of that. The only bond of relationship that I recognize is the relationship of the Spirit to the Heavenly Father. It is a question of obedience. He who does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my father, my mother, my brother, my sister. And that's the reason we're called fathers, why we're called mothers and sisters. We're supposed to be doing the Father's will. That's the new relationship. Which brings us to the last title, and this is one that we never talk about. And the reason we do not is because our books are generally not very profound and they just copy out of other books. The result is we have no depth in devotion to Our Lady. But she is now a spouse. Spouse. Not mother. Not that the motherhood is denied. I'm speaking rather of a new degree of revelation. When our blessed Lord is affixed to the cross, he looks down 
to the two most beloved creatures he has on earth, to Mary and John. Now, who is our Lord on the cross? He is the new Adam. You've often seen representations of crucifixions with a skull at the base of the crucifix. That is a representation of the old Adam. And Christ is the new Adam starting a new humanity. The human race is divided into two parts, the Adam race and the Christ race. So our Lord is the new Adam. Who is our Lord, the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross? The new Eve. Who did God say he was throughout the Old Testament? The husband of Israel. I, your creator, am your husband. All the scripture is founded upon the idea of nuptials. The nuptials of man and woman in the Garden of Eden. The nuptials of Israel and God in the Old Testament. The nuptials of divinity and humanity in the Incarnation. Now on the cross, the nuptials of the new Adam and the new Eve. Who did our blessed Lord call himself at the beginning of the public life? The bridegroom. The bridegroom. John the Baptist called himself the best man. He delighted to hear the voice of the bridegroom. All right, the new Adam is who on the cross? He's the bridegroom. Who is Mary at the foot of the cross? The new Eve. She's the bride. We're assisting at nuptials. Something's going to happen. So our Lord looks down from the cross and says, Woman, not mother, woman, there's thy son. Son, there's thy mother. In other words, here you have the Blessed Mother as the spouse standing for the church. Christ came to this earth to start an entirely new generation and a new humanity. And Mary now symbolized, stands for the church there. But until John is born, she's the, the new Eve. And John is just the beginning. He's described in the Gospels as the eldest, or the youngest, brother, because Peter outran him, or he outran Peter to the grave. And so now John is the progeny, the beginning of the union. And here is the answer in this day and age to the question that is often asked, can women be priests? No! They cannot. Why? Our Lord said he was the word, and the word is the seed. The man gives the seed. The woman receives the seed, nourishes it, fosters it, cherishes it, and loves it. There's no question here of inferiority and superiority. That's nonsense. It's a sublime differentiation of function rooted in nature. And the opening of the side of Christ was almost like the seminal seed, begetting the church. This is the great mystery that's enacted here. So that when our Blessed Mother appears later on at Pentecost, you see, she sort of fades out in a certain sense because she's surrounded by all the others. She's in the midst of them and she just simply becomes lost as the church, as the bride of Christ 
And you see, Paul constantly describes the church as the bride of Christ. And it's all the nonsense about the institutional and charismatic church that we hear from those who are very fond of novelties. It's just your, your word play. The, the church is not simply a, an institution. Here it is. It's what? Church is the bridegroom. The church is the, I mean, Christ is the bridegroom. And the church is the bride of Christ. And when we get to heaven, what are we going to assist at? The final nuptials of the bride and the bridegroom. And in the book of Revelation, read it sometime, you'll find the description of that marriage. We'll be attending a banquet, the banquet of life, when the bridegroom and bride will be surrounded by all of their children who are the saints of God. Is this a new doctrine I'm giving to you? Listen to St. Augustine. Like a bridegroom, Christ went out from his heavenly chambers. He went with the presage of his nuptials into the field of the world. He came to the marriage bed of the cross. And there in mounting it, consummated his marriage. For it was on a bed, not a pleasure, but a pain. And when he perceived the size of his creatures, he lovingly gave himself up and joined himself to the woman forever. Christ is with the church, and the church is with Christ until the end. It is not an institution. It is the body of Christ, and that's the way we speak of marriage. In the altar, we say, this is the body of Christ. When a young couple are married, they're saying, take my body, take my blood. And here the body is the bride. And this is the great mystery of the church. And that is why, as we fall away from our rosary, our devotions to Our Lady, we cease to love the church. It is that simple. Be devoted to her. Never let a day go by without saying the rosary at least once. If you drive a car, the little knobs in the wheel are to remind you of the rosaries. They're the beads for driving. If you play dummy at bridge, you can always get in a decade. Walking to the store. The rosary is, to my mind, the supreme ambulatory prayer. And walking alone is just simply talking to our lady. It is repetition, is it? I was once instructing a convert class of about 200 people in Washington, D.C. And some woman came in by chance one evening, stood in the back of the hall, and she came to me afterwards and she said, after hearing your instructions on the rosary, now I will never become a Catholic because I find that when anybody says something over and over again, he's not sincere. I don't believe them. I don't trust them. I said, who's this man with you? She said, my fiancé. Does he love you? Yes. I said, how do you know? Well, he told me. What did he say? He said, I love you. When did he tell you? As we came in the hall. When did he tell you before? Well, he told me last night. He tells me every night. I said, don't believe him. 
is repeating the same thing. No, we're living in a different moment of time, in a different space, and so we can say over and over again, I love. And therefore, restore your devotion to Our Lady, for we are her children, and we say to her in the language of Mary Dixon Fair, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just a little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometimes, gently on your knees? Did you sing to him the way Mother does to me? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world? And oh, did he, did he cry? Do you think he cares if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just a little boy, and you know the way.